regard. So we're at James chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 12. This is God's holy word. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Have you ever encountered a problem that there was a solution to? Have you ever had a problem that was fixable, that there was a remedy? For example, you walk down in your basement today and you notice from the ceiling that water is dripping down into your basement. Immediately you start thinking through where is that in proportion to the next floor up? It's right above the bathroom. So you go up into the bathroom, you look under the sink, and sure enough, one of the pipes is leaking water. So the water is leaking from the pipe, going down to the floor, making its way down into the basement. So you know what the problem is. When we were on vacation, uh, I had the, the light on my dashboard that shows there's something going on with tire pressure. So I went, I filled, the, I checked the tire, uh, all of them were a little low. One specifically was a lot lower. We filled the tire pressures up, and the next day, guess what happened again? The light came back on, went and filled it. The third day, I went to a place, they looked at the tire, and there was a, a nail. So at some point on vacation, we had driven onto a nail, it had punctured the tire, and I had a slow leak going through. Over the last six months, I've been having some, uh, some health complications, some issues, and we were trying to figure out what it was. Uh, my, my main uh, diagnosis was we thought it was allergies, and we kept trying all these things, and everything that we tried, there was no remedy and no solution. Then finally, we came to the realization that I was having an allergic reaction to a medication that I had been taking. So the medicine was actually causing. It was nothing to do necessarily with my allergies. You see, in all of those situations, though, knowing what the problem was and knowing that there's a solution doesn't necessarily deal with the problem. Do you understand that? It must be acted on. That's great you know that you have a leak coming from the sink in the bathroom going down to the basement, but until you fix the leak, it's going to continue being a problem. It was great. I found out there's a tire, a nail in my tire, but until that tire was fixed or replaced, I was going to continue to lose air. It was great that we realized that the, the, the symptoms that I was having was a result of the medication I was taking, but until I stopped taking the medication, the symptoms were going to continue on. Knowing the problem is not enough, and that's really at the heart of what we're seeing today that God's lavish grace is something we must act upon in our battle with sin. 
As we fall upon his grace and mercy, he changes us. We live differently as a result. So knowing that we have a sin problem, knowing that there's grace out there, that's not enough. We must act upon it. The solution to the war that wages within us is a transformed grace that pursues Christ. And that's what we're going to consider today, transforming grace. We're going to see it in two ways in our lives, if you're taking notes. We're going to begin by seeing that transforming grace will pursue God fully. I think we, we live in a day and an age. We live in the, the church uh, kind of culture where uh, it, the, the radical Christian, the, um, the exception to the rule, those are the people that are really all in for Jesus, but the, the average Christian is the nominal Christian, where Christianity is just kind of a, a thing that they kind of can check on a box when they're filling out a survey. Yes, I'm Christian. I'm a male. I'm a this. I'm a that. Rather than it being life transformative. But we're going to see in James' passage that we are to pursue God fully, and that is all of us. If you claim the name this morning, you should be pursuing God Fully. Second thing that we need to be doing is to pass on trying to be God. I think the more mature we become, the more God humbles us, the more you and I try to not be God. Because we're, we're awakened to the reality that we're not really good at being God. So we're going to consider that as we wrap up our passage. So let's begin. Let's pick up at verse 7 as we see that transforming grace will pursue God fully. Now, today's passage is really part two of Pastor Andy's sermon last week. We even debated having it as one sermon. But it's so much between last week and this week, I don't think we'd be doing justice to the text if we just kind of rushed through it. So as a result, we kind of split it up. Pastor Andy did last week. I've got this week. But last week, if you remember, Andy did what? He, he revealed to us that there is a, a war raging within us. And not only is that the problem, he gave a solution. Do you remember what the solution was? Starts with a G. Grace. He gives more grace. It's a grace solution. So with the idea of grace, we are going to see, okay, so what do we do with this grace that God has more of and gives to us? And that's what we'll see in our passage today. Uh, As we pursue God fully, we'll do this by resisting and relinquishing, by resisting and relinquishing. Read verse 7 with me. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. First of all, resist the devil. Now there's a war waging within us, right? The passions within us. There's this fight, but part of that fight, part of that battle includes an enemy, and includes somebody who is going against us. And who is that enemy as James decide, defines it? It's Satan. It's, it's the devil. And notice what he says, that we are to resist him. To resist. It means to oppose, to withstand, to set against, to fight, uh, to wage war. Uh, we see this on a practical level in our society when it comes to a police officer arresting a suspect. What is one of the things that they sometimes will do? They will resist an arrest. And if you've ever seen somebody resist an arrest, they are refusing to go quietly into the back of that police car. 
They might wrestle, they might fight, they might punch, they might kick, they might shoot. They might do whatever, they might run, whatever they can to not end up in the back of the police car. They do not want to be arrested, so as a result, they resist arrest. And what James is saying, in a very similar fashion, you and I are to resist the devil like that. Now, in the Bible, unfortunately, we have some bad examples of resisting the devil. We don't even have to go very far into the book of Genesis, right? First book in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they're tempted by the serpent, by Satan, by the devil, and how much resisting goes on? Little to none. He says, is he really, did he really say that? Is he going to really do that? And they're like, yeah, I guess that sounds good. This looks good. Voila, they're eating from the fruit. They shouldn't have. They both end up succumbing to sin. Another example, we're going to see it actually in the fall as we go into 2 Samuel, is David. David is not where he's supposed to be in the first place. He's walking along and he sees what? This beautiful woman bathing. And does he resist the devil in that? He doesn't. Not even slightly. He completely caves. He completely gives in. He commits adultery. He gets her pregnant. And then he ends up having her husband murdered. And he kind of covers it up and thinks he's fixed the problem. See, that's not resisting. Resisting is fighting. Resisting is combating the evil one. First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Think about it. If a lion was in this room, you're going to do, now mind you, it's not going to be a very good matchup. You're going to do everything in your power to not be eaten or your family to be eaten by the lion. And he's saying we, as we interact, as we engage, as we fight with Satan, we should be fighting in that capacity to resist. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the, de- the devil. So we can stand but then notice the problem, the, the promise. And this is good news. He says, resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that comforting? I think sometimes we exalt, we esteem Satan too much. We're aware of him, but we fear him. As if he's all-knowing, if he's omniscient, as, as he's all-powerful, and he's not. Anything that Satan does in your life, ultimately at the end of the day, is God's sovereign grace allowing him to do what he does. He is under the, ultimately under the authority of God. He can do nothing that God does not will to happen. And he promises as we resist him, he will flee. I was watching a show and all the contestants, they were in grizzly country, grizzly bear country. And all of the contestants had a bear spray. And the one particular contestant that actually ended up winning this, this contest, I, and I'm not exaggerating, from the distance of me to Jeff, the bear, Grizzly, came up to him. And it was horrifying. It was so big. And he, he ended up doing the bear spray, and it ended up, like, taking off. It did a, a sprint 
way off in the other direction. It was obviously an adrenaline rushing experience for the individual being that close to a a grizzly bear in the wild that I think was considering, I just found my meal for the day. And what he's saying is, as you and I resist, as we fight against Satan, as we stand for truth, as we honor God, as we pursue godliness, as we live a life that honors the Lord, Satan will consistently flee from us. Because what's the point? I'm outmatched. This person is walking by the Spirit. This isn't going to happen. I'll come back later. Isn't that what he does with Jesus in the, the wilderness? It says that he fled after Jesus prevailed, did not sin, and says he will return for a more opportune time. But there's hope that this is not a constant, never-ending, always persisting problem that Satan will be attacking us. Well, are you resisting the devil? Where is your fight? Where is your war? Not only do we need to resist the devil, we need to stop resisting God. He goes on and says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To draw near, it's the language of temple worship where they would go to the temple on a regular basis and do what? They would bring offerings. They would do all these things to gather before God, before Yahweh, and to exalt him and to worship him. And James is saying, not only do we resist the devil, we draw near to God. What's so significant about that? I think because it's so counterintuitive. Because if you remember the overall context of what we've said, listen to some. These are all hallmark words by James to his, to his people. He, said, he calls them, you adulterous people. He implies that they are enemies of God, that they're friends of the world. In our passage, he calls them double-minded. He calls them uh, wretched. He calls them sinners. Now think about that. You're an adulterer. You're wretched. You're a sinner. You're double-minded. You're an enemy of God. Is that, when you hear those terms, when you hear that kind of description of you, does that sound like the kind of language that then you should go flee to God? It doesn't, does it? it? It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to us. What, what it makes sense to you and I, this is what we think. All right, what I need to do is I need to get my act together. I need to get cleaned up. I need to get everything in order. I need to stop doing that sin. I need to stop doing that. And once I kind of get to a point where I'm a little bit more acceptable, now, now I go to God I'm ready. I'm kind of, I've cleaned myself. I'm good to go. Now I can go to God and he's going to allow me to come before him. Friends, that is one of the biggest lies. If anything, when you are struggling, when you are hitting that spiritual rock bottom, is there even a a better time for you and I than that to flee to God, to draw near to him? Instead of living a worldly life, we go to the Lord. Why? Because he gives us that G word. What is it? grace. More grace. We just keep going back to the grace. Undeserved favor. And notice the devil's going to flee. The Lord will draw near. Zechariah 1.3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Isn't that the beauty of the prodigal son? The prodigal son, before he comes back, he's like, man, I need to get my act together. I'm gonna, I have the script. I'm going to say to dad, Dad will hear it, and then maybe he'll give me a second chance. And when dad sees him coming back, what does dad do? He runs to him with arms wide open because he is so excited that his son is back in his presence. 
And I think you and I, we need to realize that God has that kind of, of, of a heart for us. So stop resisting him. Are you drawing near to God? What priority are you placing on your relationship with him? How are you pursuing him? What is holding you back? What is stopping you from pursuing God? Are there certain sins where it's just like, he won't accept me? He won't forgive me? Friends, draw near to God. All right, we do that by resisting and relinquishing, but we also do it by recognizing and repenting. Go on to verse 8, second part with me. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You notice the movement that is expected of the believer. It is one of action. Now, like I said, everything that we're talking about, it's it's grace-based. It's not merit-based. This is not pulling up your proverbial bootstraps, getting yourself right and ready, and then God forgives you. Then God accepts you. We can't do it on our own. Even the language right here where he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. First and foremost, the cleansing and purification had to happen where? Through Jesus. The only reason that God can look at you and not see a sinner destined for wrath and condemnation is because of Jesus Christ and the gospel. There is no exception to that. Do you understand that? First and foremost, that is the direction that you must be. But with that said, with that as a presumption of of Jesus Christ and what he has done through the gospel, you and I then are to act upon it. I know, I know it's really saddening for many of you, but school's starting soon. I just look at the look of disgust. Some of the parents are like, hallelujah. But for the students, they're like, yeah. But one of the things, we know this about school, it's going to require, especially as you get up in age, it requires effort. It's going to require reading. It's going to require doing homework. It's going to require studying. If you don't put forth the effort in, apart from rare exceptions, apart from the geniuses in our, in our group, you're probably not going to do pretty well with school. Amen? You see, and, and following, Christ, I, I think, following Christ requires effort on our part. That doesn't make us right before God. That doesn't get us into a special place in heaven. But there's no room to be passive. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is language of worship. It's, it's cleansing. It's purifying. It involves what? Confessing our sin. It involves repentance. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we continue to confess our sins before God. That doesn't get us into heaven. Get us into heaven is Christ. But to maintain a healthy relationship with the Lord we need to confess our sins. We need to own our sins. We need to acknowledge when we're off the beaten path, when we're doing things that are not honoring of Christ. But not just confessing, because I think sometimes maybe that's the easiest part. 
admitting that I'm a failure, I'm broken, I'm a hot mess, but then doing something about it. Rather than it being that broken record that constantly repeats where you just keep saying it over, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You do something about it. You repent. You put sin to death in your life. Acts 3.19 says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted. And he goes on, he calls them double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? Imagine there's a fence and you're on both sides of it. Because what these people are, 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 are living practically like, whether they would articulate to James or anybody or not is debatable. What they, they thought was, okay, I can love the world, I can live like the world, I can indulge in sin, and I can follow Jesus. You cannot, those two are not compatible. You cannot merge those concepts. You either follow Christ or you follow the world. It's one or the other, and it requires action. Why are you confessing? Are you repenting? Are you putting sin to death? But not only is there movement, notice the mourning that he expects from them. Verse 9, he goes on and says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves with the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, the attitude of humility that is produced when we acknowledge our sin before God is, is palpable. It's, it, it's noticeable. You can sense it. You can see it. Now, I, I want to stress something here. There is a place for joy and laughter in the gospel, okay? I like to laugh. I, I like to have fun. I've, I've got six kids. I have to laugh or I will go nuts. So there's a place for laughter. There's a place for joy. He's not, you could take this verse out of context and says, okay, so we just constantly like, whoa, like Eeyore, kind of like gloom and doom. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about here. But you know what he is challenging? He's challenging people who are not humble, who are not acknowledging their sin, who are not owning their transgressions before God. He's challenging them to have a wake-up call. That there needs to be a a, a change. Remember, he's called them adulterers, enemies of God, double-minded sinners. And they're kind of cool with that. And he wants the weight of that, the wave of that, to overcome them to a point where it produces sorrow and mourning. When we're at the campfire on vacation, one of the things I'm grateful is that God has given nerve endings on our fingers, right? Because it only takes one time when the kids are roasting marshmallows and they foolishly grab a hold of the metal rods that we're using to roast them, mar- and you get burnt, you think about it the rest of the time, right? It, it is a very real uh, wake-up call that if I do this longer, if I do it worse, I might have a severe burn. God is so gracious. God is so loving. He is so merciful for you and I. 
He gives us conviction. He gives us contrition. He gives us sorrow and mourning when he opens up our eyes to our sin. You see, there's a time and place for not feeling good. Did you hear that? I want to stress that today. There is a time and place for not only is it good, it's okay, it's biblical, and it is a gift from God when you and I don't feel good. So, so against our culture, right? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Because here's the deal. Here's how you and I typically, here's how we feel bad with sin normally. We feel bad with sin because we got caught. We feel bad with sin because somebody is upset with us. That is not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is grieving, is mourning because you see a holy, righteous God and you've offended him and yet he has extended grace upon grace. You feel bad. Like, how could I do that? Do you understand the difference? And that is what God has done ultimately in Christ. He wants us to feel convicted about our sin. I remember a a young man early on in the life of covenant. Today is 17 years since covenant's been in existence. Blows my mind it's been that long. But I remember in those first couple years, we had a young man who came to church, came for a while. He was a friend of a friend. Came for a little bit, and then he stopped coming. I was curious, insecure. I wanted to know, like, I wonder why he stopped coming. And um, he told my friend, because he was the friend of a friend, he's like, here's the deal. He's like, he's like, you know, a lot of the Sundays when I went to Covenant, I would leave. I kind of felt bad about myself. And he said, so I ended up at this one church, and he's like, I've been here for a year, and I have never felt bad about myself. Okay, kind of recap. I didn't give you anything about the guy. He, has been, he was living with his girlfriend uh, in a, a sexual relationship the whole time he was at Covenant. So I was speaking truth. I was speaking the word of God, and it convicted him. You see, friends, it is good for you to sometimes feel bad. Now, I, I hope and pray you don't leave every Sunday feeling bad. That's never my aim. That's never my objection, uh, objective. But if you can sit before God's word always and never feel any conviction, never feel any contrition, that's a you problem, not a me problem. That you should feel remorse. You should feel sin. It's a good thing. And that's what we see here. That's why he says, I want you to be wretched and mourn and weep. Put a pause button on the laughter. Have it turn to mourning, your joy to be gloom. But notice this is, this is temporary. Why? Goes on, he says what? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will do what? He will exalt you. Because what is the disposition when you're mourning? You're, you're, you're low. So he says, as a result of that, I'm going to lift you up. Psalm 3011 says, you have turned my mourning into, guess what? To dancing. That he'll exalt you. We don't have to stay in that constant grief and shame 
but it is good to be there for a season. So I have to ask you, when is the last time you cried about your sin? When is the last time that you were remorseful for your transgressions? That's a good thing, friends. I think we've tried to numb us way too much. We are, we are so like the world where we want you to always have a smile on your face, that everything's perfect and peachy, and there's no problems, and that is not real life, and that is not real uh, gospel living. You need to confess. You need to deal with it. All right. So we saw transforming grace that pursues God fully by resisting and relinquishing, by recognizing and repenting. And you see, it produces humility. And the humility then causes you and I to stop trying to be God. This really bookends verses 1 to 6 that Pastor Andy preached, this practical living of transformed grace. Reason number one that we pass on trying to be God is because of our tendency to pretend to be the judge. Read verse 11 with me. He goes on and says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks, against, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. First of all, you and I, we have a tendency to speak evil against one another. This is the person who's pursuing God. They should, not do not, they should not do what? They should not speak evil against other. Now, the verses that I just read, the verse specifically that we just read, is often taken out of context. Is it not? What we see in the church today is we take that verse and it means that you and I can never speak truth into anybody's life. So your best friend is having an affair on his wife you find out about it, and then you say, your, 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 your spouse says, well, you're going to have to confront him. You're, you're going to have to say something to him. And then you say, who am I to judge? Friends, that is not even slightly what James is communicating here. Not even slightly. Ephesians 4.15 says, rather, we are to speak the truth in love. So friends, as opportunities arise, as you live out the gospel, please don't back down, don't relinquish on speaking truth and calling brothers and sisters out in sin when needed. That's not what he's talking about. You know what he is combating? He's combating against not caring, loving exhortation. He's speaking against people who judge one another. I think in the United States, one of the people uh, that I think of when I think of the idea of judging is Simon Cow. Do we know who we're talking about? He's been on like multiple uh, talent shows. He was on American Idol. He's on America's Got Talent. He's on The X Factor. He is extremely wealthy and he's good at criticizing people. I I remember earlier on with American Idol, it was always, you felt so bad for the contestants when they got to Simon. You'd get a girl up there and, you know, she, you could tell that she really loves to sing. She thinks she's pretty good at singing. And the first two judges would be like, it was pretty good. I just, I don't think you're ready for this point 
but you know, make, keep working at it. Don't give up on your dream. And then it would get to Simon, and he'd be like, that was rubbish. He's like, you're awful. I think you looked awful. Like, and like he's even going at their appearance. He's not even talking about the singing. Then he gets in your, your, the voice was terrible. It sounded like a cat that was stuck in an engine of a car. And, like, and they get done, and you can just like tears. And like, oh my goodness. And you see, I think what, what James is combating, and what you and I are really good at, even if sometimes we don't articulate it in front of others, is we're like little mini Simon Cowles, are we not? We love judging people. We do it. We do it all the time. It's this self-righteous evaluating of others going on. That's why Jesus says, listen to Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own? You know what we do? We gossip. We slander. We tear down. We discourage. And that starts from young ages up. I know for a fact if I go to any high school and I'm like a, a fly on the wall, I can watch a whole lot of judging going on. Did you see what she's wearing today? Did you see what he did? Did, did you hear his answer in class? How stupid. We judge like that. And you're like, oh, that's, that's high school kids. They have their own problems, right? Are we any better as adults? Last week, did you judge anybody's parenting? Did you judge how anybody spent their money? You look at your neighbor, that's an expensive car. They must have, they must come from money. And we do, we, don't we do that? We, we judge like that. We judge how people vote. We judge how people dress. We judge, we judge, we judge. And that is what he's saying. That's, friends, that's evil. As a follower of Christ, that is totally out of line. It's out of character. Or are you judging others? When's the last time you'd be, I mean, you might be judging me right now. Like, get done. This is enough. Might not like my shirt. I hate blue. Whatever. We judge like that. We laugh, but no, seriously, we do that. We're going to, a bunch of you are going to go to the baptism service today, and you're going to judge other people. Why can't they watch their kid? We do it. But here's the problem. Not only is this speaking evil against one another, it's speaking evil against God and his law. He says, the one who speaks against her brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Notice the progression. It's not just that you're speaking evil against Oliver. You're speaking against the law. And whose law is the law? Everybody. It's God. So who are you speaking against? You're speaking against God. James 2.8, earlier on in James, it said the royal law. And you know what the royal law is? Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what is one of the most not loving neighbors yourself things that you can ever do? Judging others. It's a slap in the face of God. It's what 1 John 4, 8 declares. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So with the same kind of thought process, if you judge, it calls into question whether or not you know God. It's hypocrisy. It's I don't care what he thinks or acts. 
It's disrespect. And then remember what we were, we were told to do earlier on in James. Don't be simply a hearer of the word, be a what? You know what's not a doer of the word? A judger. Judging other people is the opposite of doing the word. It is opposing the word. It is sinning against the word. Why are you judging? Are you judging God? Do you think you're better at being God than God? Because it's not just our our tendency to, to try to be the judge. It's our tendency to forget the one true God. Go to verse 12 with me. First of all, it says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? First of all, we need to see God. Very important point that James is making. What is the point? How many lawgivers and judges are there? One. One of my favorite things as a parent is when my children co-parent with me. Amen? You love that, right? I'm in the midst, or my wife and I are in the midst of parenting one of our children who maybe it's a disciplinary issue or something, and then I always love, I always appreciate when a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old, from all of their infinite wisdom and experience level, they come in and say, hey, Dad, Mom, I got this. And then they share their, I, I appreciate I'm like, we are so lucky, Abby. We have a third parent. A lot of families don't have even two, but we have three parents. Am I being a little bit facetious? Yeah. Do not appreciate it at all. And you know what? You and I, when we're judging, guess what? We're stepping in and saying, God, I I got this. And God's looking at us like, I don't need you to get this. You need to understand, I'm the judge. I'm the lawgiver. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king who will save us. Are you a judge? Are you a lawgiver? Are you a king? Then stop pretending like it. There's no other God. First Chronicles 17, 20, there is none like you, O Lord. There is no one besides God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. You see, the transforming grace of Jesus Christ produces humility. And it does two things. It gives you an exalted, high view of God, and it gives you a very real view of self. And he's the one who saves. He's the one that can destroy. Sobering, gracious, merciful spirit gets produced within us. Well, are you mindful of God? Are you looking? Are you seeing? Are you self-focused? Are, are, you, are you realizing that you are not God? But not only do we need to see God, lastly, we need to see the gap. Less, that, that last question, I think, is the profound question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Because here's what happens. You and I, we like to compare. and We like to compare against other people. And then we kind of elevate ourselves before and less, Right? We do that. I, my, my oldest is, is in that age now. She's getting ready for college, taking like the ACT. And I, and I know how students think when they do the ACT. They get a score, and immediately they want to find out what their classmates get. And then they kind of put themselves in like a bracket. They're like, oh, I, I did better than her. I did better than him. 
And then you're like, yeah, he did better than me. And then there's immediately like, yeah, but he took it like three times. Or he studied for it. Wait till, you you know, that that kind of comparison thing that goes on. And you see what we are really good at when our judging is we, we, we judge against other people. And then we like to look at the people whose lives are a little bit more messy you're like, I'm glad I'm not like the tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like them or like, yeah, like, whoa. And then if we see somebody that maybe is living a little bit more righteous, we excuse them away. Well, I mean, they're, they're in ministry. They have to. It's their job. And we kind of fit into that. And, and really, if you want to, friends, if you want to start doing the comparison game, you want to do that, go for it. But what you need to do is you need to compare yourself before God. So stop looking at your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your family member. Look at God, and then let's do the comparison game. And what it's going to do is going to produce humility. Romans 2.1 says this, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same very thing. Because the heart of it, when you start judging other people, you need to look in the mirror because you need Jesus as much as they do. Don't forget that. Let, I mean, if we really want to be vulnerable with one another, we all are a bunch of hot messes. We're all a bunch of dumpster fires. We're all a bunch of train wrecks. The only difference is some of us are a lot better at hiding it. Some of us are a lot better of kind of keeping it on the down low. But our only hope is Jesus, every one of us. Every single one of us is desperate for God's grace. Well, do you have a high view of self? Do you see the gap? Friends, because there's a problem, and it's a sin problem. Sometimes in life, we'll, we'll see people, uh, they, they will have to be a part of an intervention. Do we know what I'm talking about? Maybe a person is battling with a, a major addiction or they're living in a, a major sin and somebody is going to step in and confront. Maybe they've tried steps earlier on in the process and the individual has just not really responded well. So you get to that point where it's like, we, we, we've got to try one last ditch effort. And you might bring all your family and friends together and they walk into this room and, and you all stress that this is a, fro- a problem. This is, it's just going to maybe result in the end of your life at some point. You've got to do something about it. But what has to happen usually in that situation is the person who has the problem at some point has to admit that they have the problem. They have to admit that change needs to take a place. I mean, we say it sometimes. You can lead a horse to water, but what can't you do? Can't make him drink it. And friends, what James is confronting in the church is there is a problem, and he is offering a divine intervention, a wake-up call. And what the problem is this, the church, unfortunately, is filled with a bunch of nominal, tepid, lukewarm Christians, which is an oxymoron. It shouldn't even exist. And what he's saying is this is not acceptable. This should not be tolerated. We have a sin problem. When we always will this side of glory. So don't, don't take this wrong that somehow sin's never going to be an issue moving forward if we commit. No. Until Christ comes home or uh, takes us home or we return in glory, 
Uh, we will. But there's grace, lots of grace, more grace. But with grace comes what? Action. God's lavish grace is something that we must act upon in our battle with sin. So the solution to the war that wages are within us is God's transforming grace, producing a different life. And I think the problem is there's a shortage of believers pursuing Christ. Friends, pursuing Christ is not for the special Christians. You understand that? Every single one of you here, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is a life of cross-bearing. It is a life of radical following the Lord. Your faith should not be something that fits into your schedule, like a doctor's appointment and paying the bill. And I've encountered way too many Christians in 17 years of pastoral ministry where Christianity fits like that. Well, here's my Christian part. I fit in these hour and a half on Sunday morning. Oh, on, I'm at a life group, so I do that. And then the rest of my life is kind of mine. That is not following Jesus. Following Jesus is all in all the time. It's transformative. It is life-altering. It is identification. It's cross-bearing. It's following Jesus. Well, are you following Christ in that way? Let's pray. God, we come before you right now, and we acknowledge that this is something that we genuinely struggle with. Uh, we are not always uh, committed that we have a very divided heart, that it is very easy for us to get distracted to fall in love with the world, to be consumed with self. So God, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for more grace. We pray for anybody here today who's really struggling with this, who's kind of just going through the motions, that today might be a defining day, a, a day in which uh, they, they really draw the line in the sand and then from here on moving forward, I'm going to follow you, and we pray, God, that you would give them the grace to act on that and that there would be a noticeable change moving forward. Oh, God, we need you, each one of us. We need Jesus. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand as res and respond.